The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. You've tuned in to Columbia Calling, your first stop for everything you want to know about Columbia. How and where to invest, where to visit. From the Pacific to the Caribbean, the Andes Mountains to the Amazon jungle, Columbia has a slice of everything. Shooting from the hip, answering the questions that need answering. Here's your host, the journalist and hotelier, Richard McCall, shedding some light on the fashionable South American destination of Colombia. It's that time of the week again, folks. This is me, your host, Richard McCall, here in Bogota, Colombia, 2,600 meters closer to the stars. And this is episode 376 of the Colombia Calling Podcast. A quick Thank you to everyone out there that downloaded and listened to episode 375, where we gave an explainer episode all about the unrest, demonstrations, and protests in Colombia. Obviously, huge debt is owed to Emily Hart in Medellin for giving us the uh, overview of the news. Very, very good overview of the news. And indeed, the director of Colombia Risk Analysis, Sergio Guzman, for his time and knowledge in sharing what was an incredibly well-balanced uh, piece of recording, a piece of radio about uh, the demonstrations, the Paro Nacional here in Colombia, which is now extended, as I record, for more than 20 days. On Wednesday the 19th, of May, there will be another, there's been calls for another huge um, demonstration. And so we will see how this all develops because on Sunday, uh, the government and various uh, demonstration leaders were, protest leaders were in meetings. This didn't uh, materialize in anything. And those, of course, those meetings uh, continue at the moment. But we'll see the momentum still appears to be with the protesters in the country. So we'll see how the government chooses to respond to this in coming days. And I'll leave, uh, we'll be with uh, Emily Hart shortly, and she'll be giving us another large overview of what's been going on in Colombia regarding the demonstrations and the protests, the nationwide demonstrations and protests. So again, thank you to all of you that downloaded. We more than doubled our haul of downloads for epi- on a regular epi- episode for episode 375. Now, this week's episode is no less important in truth because during the protests, regular, let's say regular or important news in Colombia has been buried and has been largely overlooked. And so we'll be talking to Andres Bermudez, who is a journalist and a researcher and in fact worked helping script some of the narrative and some of the words, some of the write-ups to the 2016 peace accords. He definitely worked with Sergio Jaramillo, who's the High Commissioner for Peace, and indeed he writes for justiceinfo.net. One of the most important pieces he's written of late was about the FARC guerrillas' admission that kidnapping was an official guerrilla 
policy. And so this is one of the most important announcements made by the FARC themselves and the Secretariat there in the Jurisdicción Especial para la Paz. That's a special jurisdiction for peace set up uh, in the in the wake of the 2016 peace accords. And so we will see, and we are waiting to see what the HEP, the Jurisdicción Especial de Paz, creates for the FARC in regards to a punishment for admitting this policy, this crime against humanity, which unfortunately was overlooked largely by the international press due to the protests in Colombia. So a very important piece of news and a very important episode of this, the Colombia Calling podcast this week. So thank you again for listening. Thank you to the new subscribers on our Patreon campaign. That's patreon.com Columbia Calling. For as little as $2 a month, you can sponsor the Columbia Calling uh, podcast. Adam Nunn, long-time listener out there, has got a whole haul of uh, of goodies for being a long-time uh, sponsor on the uh, Patreon podcast. I believe his hoodie, tote bags, stickers, and mugs have all arrived there to his residence in the United States. So thank you again to you, Adam, and thank you to the new sponsors who I will, of course, put in the newsletter that you get when you are a Patreon supporter. I will leave you now with uh, Emily Hart in Medellin, and we'll be back with Andres Bermudez talking about the HEP, talking about the false positives, talking about the FARC's admission that kidnapping was indeed official guerrilla policy. So thank you, and don't go away. Bye-bye. I'm Emily Hart, and this is a special update on Colombia's national protests for Colombia Calling for the week of May 17, 2021. Protests in Colombia are now in their third week, and street demonstrations continue, as does a violent state response. The protest, known as the Paro, started on the 28th of April, and while mostly peaceful, the movement has suffered a violent state response from various security forces, the scale and brutality of which continue to draw international attention and condemnation. Solidarity protests have happened in cities worldwide. Between the 28th of April and the 12th of May alone, there were 2,000 aggressions by security forces against the protests. At least 39 protesters have been murdered by state forces, with a further seven cases pending verification. There have been over 360 physical assaults by security agents and more than 1,000 arbitrary detention of protesters. More than 150 remain missing. 30 protesters have now suffered serious eye injuries as a result of police use of riot control weaponry like tear gas and rubber bullets, which have been illegally fired into the faces of protesters. In focus in the last week has been sexual violence. There have been 16 incidents of sexual violence reported against protesters. This week, one 17-year-old protester in the city of Popayan was arrested and sexually assaulted by police in custody. She took her own life hours after her release from detention. Initially, the police labelled the allegations as false news, then later withdrew four officers for an investigation which is now in process. These events sparked protests across the country, including an attack on the police station where she was detained in Popayan. The government sent in police and riot control force ESMAD to control protests in the city. Those agents subsequently killed another protester, a 22-year-old who died from the impact of a police projectile to his neck, suspected to be a tear gas canister. NGO Temblores has counted... 442 violent responses to peaceful process and has recorded the presence of unmarked agents without uniforms acting against demonstrations as well as attacks with firearms on protests by armed citizens and armed groups. So far, only five policemen have been suspended for failure to comply with protocols for intervening in protests. The protests are taking place in the context of a third peak of COVID-19 in Colombia and an economic crisis caused by the pandemic. 
The demonstrations were sparked by a tax reform bill, an attempt to raise funds for public spending, but which, in practice, would have increased hardship for Colombia's worst off. Within the first week of the protest, the tax reform was withdrawn and the responsible minister resigned, but protests continued. The reform bill catalyzed the movement, but state violence against the protests has intensified unrest, and there are many ongoing demands, including the repeal of a new health reform and the establishment of a basic income. Those on the streets have, however, been protesting a broad range of issues, including inequality, state violence, failure to implement the peace process, corruption, aerial fumigation plans, and narco-politics. The National Strike Committee and the government have now agreed to negotiations, and a meeting will be held this afternoon to discuss demands, which include immediate action to stop violence against the protest, withdrawal of the ESMAD riot police and the army from the management of the protests, and that the police refrain from using weapons and from making indiscriminate arrests. Additionally, the protesters want the president to create a special prosecution unit to investigate the thousands of human rights violations allegedly committed during protests. Though negotiations are being held with the National Strike Committee, many on the streets do not acknowledge the body as representative of the protests, many of which have been independent. In particular, the indigenous Minga protest has rejected the committee's negotiations with the government. President Ivan Duque continues with his National Conversation 2.0, an attempt to consult on social issues with various sectors of society. Meanwhile, in Cali, where the violence against protesters has been particularly marked, negotiations were abandoned by youth groups due to a police attack on a protest during the talks. The protests are making ripples internationally, with state actions condemned by various NGOs, from Amnesty International to Human Rights Watch. The Inter-American Commission on Human Rights, a body of the Organization of American States, has also requested a visit to Colombia, having received hundreds of requests to investigate allegations of human rights violations committed by security forces. Meanwhile, 50 U.S. congressmen have requested that conditions be put on future aid to Colombia. Led by Democrat Jim McGovern, they express deep concern about the political and human rights situation in Colombia. They are calling on President Joe Biden to denounce the violence and suspend U.S. assistance to the Colombian police until improvements are noted in the use of force and judicial accountability. They are also calling for an end to U.S. cooperation with the ESMAD riot police, as well as the freezing of the sale of arms, equipment and training to that squad. While negotiations continue, there is another mass mobilization scheduled for Wednesday, 19th of May. And we're back. This is the third segment of episode 376 of the Columbia Calling podcast. I'm Richard McCall, here your host, as always. Our very special guest this week is Andres Bermudez, who is a journalist, investigative reporter. He worked in the high office I mean, with the peace office with under the peace accords he's written books about the peace accords and transitional justice and this week we want to st- we want to discuss what's going on with the jurisdiction especial para la paz so the special jurisdiction for peace but first and foremost andres thank you so much for coming on the colombia calling podcast thank you very much richard for having me it's a pleasure no, the pleasure is mine, and of course, you've got you've got a you know a difficult uh, task ahead of you is to follow in the footsteps of Sergio Guzman for episode three hundred and seventy five, which by far and away about the protests in Colombia has been the most popular <laughs> podcast in just a few short days. So you have to you have to you know bring your A game today, uh, Andres. <laughs> Very happy to try. Uh, yeah, here we go, Andres. So hang on, you're, so you are an investigative journalist and you do environmental journalism. And what is principally at this moment of interest to me, and, and of course your background working in, in the Peace Commission and so on, 
is the website justiceinfo.net. You put out some really in-depth articles. And of course, it warns you beforehand, eight-minute read, (laughs) 10-minute read, um, but really in-depth articles about what is going on with the Jurisdiccion Especial para la Paz, so the special jurisdiction for peace, or what people here call the HEP. Um, Perhaps you could tell us a little bit about the background of the HEP, the Jurisdiccion Especial para la Paz, and and what's going on. So I write about this Justice Info, as you were saying, is a Swiss-based uh, website which uh, believes that the best way to that you know the journalism can contribute to transitional uh, or international criminal justice is to explain these issues um, in you know in a sort of maybe pleasant, not the good word, but in a, you know in, a, in, a, in a, an agreeable way, while at the same time being able to convey the complexity of many of these issues, because I think. Uh, one of the things that happens, and it happens a lot in Colombia, is that these complex issues get uh, overly simplified. People just want a black or white scenario of what's happening. They have very simplistic opinions about it. And these are complex issues. So what we do is we we, we write about those. And for me, the importance of this is because uh, Colombia's transition from peace, you know, from conf- armed conflict, 52-year-long armed conflict to peace, um, which is a transition that's going to last between somewhere between 10 or 15 or maybe even 20 years, uh, is by far one of the most transformational processes that the country has faced in, I would say, its entire history. So that's why, for me, it is so important to be able to tell the stories of what's happening in the transitional justice system, which is one of the cornerstones of that transition, in a complex, nuanced way. Mm. And and so, I mean, we're talking about this, and, and of course, you're going to mention transitional justice a lot. If you could give a, a brief overview of what transitional justice means for some, you know, I think most of my listeners will know, but, but to, to put it into context for this podcast, that would be really helpful. So basically, most countries that have undergone any form of transition, whether it's from, you know, autocracy or dictatorships to democracy or from armed conflicts to peace, have faced this question, this dilemma of, you know, what are we going to do to enable this transition? Are we going to, which of the victims' rights are we going to prioritize, whether it's truth or whether it's justice or whether it's redress? Um, You can see South Africa tried it out saying, you know, we're going to put most of our eggs in the basket of truth. Uh, other countries, you know, have tried redress. Other countries have tried strictly justice. Some have tried to mix them up, but in general, they tried to privilege one over the another. Colombia did a very different thing. Colombia said, um, because obviously times have changed and we've learned the lessons of other places, what works, what doesn't. But this time around Colombia, when, you know, when we negotiated the 2016 landmark uh, peace deal with FARC, um, and a lot of things, you know, were new or at least were, were different. Like we have the Rome Statute, we have the International Criminal Court, we have much higher standards, uh, not just internationally, but also nationally. And the question was, well, what are we going to do? And Colombia basically conceived and decided to implement a very comprehensive uh, justice, transitional justice system that tries to do all of these things at the same time. Basically, it pits you know, the four main rights uh, that victims have and tries to do sort of like address them at the same time. So it's basically trying to to establish or clarify the truth of what happened. It's trying to bring justice. 
concerning most, you know, the human rights violations that happened to mass atrocities over such a long period of time. It's trying to redress victims um, in a sense of trying not just to, you know, repair a damage that has been done, but basically help them rebuild their life projects. And overall, you know, much more globally, try to uh, guarantee that this does not happen again, what we call non-recurring. So all of this working together should help us basically clear you know, these obstacles and, 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 and move forward in a reconciled way. Uh, and to do this, it created this transitional justice system, which has sort of like four legs. Uh, each of them does a different thing. The main structure there is this is the special jurisdiction for peace, what we Colombians call very simplistically the HIP, because that's the, the acronym. Uh, that's basically a, a special tribunal, which is going to try uh, those most responsible of the most serious war crimes and crimes against humanity. Um, it's going to do it in a, you know, in a, in a special way, which I think we'll address in a minute. There's also a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which many countries have had, and it's uh, basically trying to establish what happened and trying also to look forward, you know, what lessons can be drawn from our past. Uh, it does so in what uh, uh, scholars and people working in this call it an extrajudicial way, uh, you know, logic, which means basically you can go tell them things and these are not going to, um, you know, be brought back against you uh, legally. There's also a, a smaller, uh, end, you know, agency that's uh, called the unit to search for people that have been deemed missing, which basically mm. is trying to clarify what happened to roughly a thousand, a hundred thousand Colombians uh, whose fate is not yet known. And there's finally a government-based uh, uh, redress program for victims, which is, has been part of the, uh, the country since uh, actually 2011. That was sort of like our first transitional justice mechanism, and that was ongoing since a few years before the peace deal materialized. So all, all of them wow. together are working to uh, be able to bring truth, redress, and justice to victims. And we have a whole amount of just of victims in Colombia, and that's also very important. Uh, we have we, we officially have 9 million victims of armed conflict in Colombia, individually identified um, over a period of time that begins in 1985. So we're not even counting what happened before that, but that's roughly a sixth, one-sixth, or one out, one out of every six Colombians. It is. I, I've always, I've long said that every Colombian is at some level in their family affected by the conflict. At some level. I mean, when you, you go back to looking at that uh, documentary that uh, Jesus Abad Colorado did uh, with my friend Kate Horn and uh, Testigo, El Testigo, mm -hmm. and, and you just saw him taking, I think it was his great aunt or his aunt back to the countryside and it's, oh, this is where the liberals or the conservatives. And but I'm fascinated now. This, this point that you brought up that you've you've backdated to 1985. It's not going to go further back than 1985. That's that's where we're starting. It's very difficult to go further back in time, but as you say, you know, violence has is has been a constant presence in Colombian history, not just let's say recent or semi-recent history. Every family has been marked, and we're also, anyways, whether it's we're not, for example, I'm not a direct victim of the armed conflict. Uh, but that does not mean that we are not traumatized as a whole, uh, uh, you know, as a society. I, I do think we've, you know, there's a lot of uh, 
uh, psychosocial and emotional damage that we've you know we've gone through, and I think that even shows in the polarization that we see these days in uh, people's aggressiveness, and you know this has permeated our, our entire lives. But you know a peace deal, with, obviously things are not going to change from one day to another. But these are all the small steps that we can do to sort of like you know heal and move forward. Yeah. Well, I think, and I've t- I've discussed this with others and, and writers, in fact, and we say Colombia is traumatized. There's a it's a collective trauma in this nation, uh, but also what you said there is is it's not going to change from one day to the next. This has been one of my great frustrations, having studied the peace accord and other peace deals around the world and conflicts. This has been one of my great frustrations. Was it that Colombians were sold the idea of peace, it was just going to change everything and, and universally and straight away? Or is it because Colombians are, are impatient for peace? Because I think that's what a lot of the rejection of the peace deal is that, well, yeah, this is the Tal Paz de Santos, nothing has happened. But it takes 15 years or two generations for this to come through. So I, I don't know, this wasn't, I feel it wasn't explained to the general population. I, I mean, having have, uh, as you worked in the, in the in the very entrails of the system itself, what do you feel about this? I mean, there's there's many things that happened, and we probably could have explained it much better. But I, but I do think uh, you know, not not the whole of government really, uh, but the people working at the peace commissioner's office were doing a tremendous job of trying to explain this. But it's you know, there's still one thing that's that's true. We do have the world's longest peace agreement. Uh, You know, it's a Guinness World Record for sure, at 310 pages long. Uh, Originally 297 and then up to, you know, 310 pages after the renegotiation, uh, after Mm. our our failed plebiscite. So, you know, explaining such a long document is also complex. And people want, many people want, you know, just simplistic uh, versions of things and there's always you know i i always remember this cartoon where there's sort of a cue on one side and the cue on the other side and one says um simple lies and the other says complex truths and you have people obviously queuing on the simple lies section of the of the cartoon and um there's a lot of things happen there's a lot of things uh you know it's a very comprehensive agreement where everything sort of is unme- is meshed together and some actors in Colombian society think or, you know, would like to think that you can sort of separate some from the others. And for example, you know, basically um, withhold the chance for former combatants to run for office eventually. And then, you know, that's, you know, you you need those incentives to bring them out of war. Uh, And if you take those incentives away, it's just going to be very difficult. Or they don't want them to, 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 you know, to go to prison. And that's one tough thing in Colombia because... uh, I think we are, I mean, I don't have any facts for this or any evidence, but I think Colombia is one is a, uh, is a country with a very strong legalistic culture and where we equate justice to prison, which is, you know, not necessarily mm-hmm. true. You know, the only form of justice is not being in jail. Um, mm-hmm. And a lot of people didn't want to, to understand that a more complex system could be put into place where you could have mm-hmm. different types of sanctions, and we're, we'll discuss that in a minute, uh, but where overall the system, the entire point of the system was to help uh, bring victims these four right, fundamental rights they, they have and they, they demand from us all the time, which are truth and justice and re- redress or reparations and non-recurrence. Um, mm. And in that process, we did amazing things in the sense that the Colombian peace process really was, you know, 
and people are studying this today, was very innovative in a lot of ways. And mm. one that is fundamental and, you know, it hits the nerve of what, what, what we're discussing is this is the first time ever in the world where an armed group discusses with the government um, the design of a, of a transitional justice system to which that armed group is then, you know, is afterwards going to, uh, you know, go forward. Uh, this had mm -hmm. never happened before. No armed group, illegal group, had ever negotiated that they would go before justice. That simply, you know, had never happened. In countries mm -hmm. where they set up tribunals, it, either it happened afterwards or it happened without, um, you know, these consultations. Um, yeah. But we sort of underestimate these kinds of things. And, you know, we're, we're very, I don't know, we're very privy to these petty infighting uh, but I don't think that's something that is extraordinary just to Colombia. And I, I have a lot of no. friends in South Africa who were telling us, you know, everybody sort of sees a South African transition today as, as a done deal, as something that was, you know, relatively or, or very successful. Uh, but you always sort of forget that it, you know, at the moment where you were in, you know, you were, na you were navigating this transition, it was always rocky. It, rocky. it was always mm -hmm. tumultuous. And I'm sure mm -hmm. if you asked people in Ireland and Northern Ireland, they would probably say the same, like, these are rocky, complex uh, roads that have, you know, sort of like a roller coaster of emotions. And I think we're, you know, we're probably on a, on the lower part of that roller coaster, but we'll continue advancing. And it's, I, I don't think it's something that is, you know, not, neither definitive nor something that is, uh, you know, uh, sort of like uh, condemned to, to not be able to work. I think, you know, I am usually an optimistic person and I think this is just part of what happened. We probably mm -hmm. could have done, you know, better with a different government that has not been hostile to the peace deal. We would probably be better off if we didn't have such a divisive plebiscite, but you know, that's life and we have to deal with the, with the hand we dealt ourselves. And, and I think, I still think we're well headed in our transition. I, you know, I think so. I, I mean, it's such a complete document. And even when it went back for the revision to then get passed through Congress, and this is what I say to people who oppose it, it's like, well, you know, and, 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 they, and they discuss this sort of illegality of that sort of move. I went, it went back to Congress with the changes that the party in opposition demanded. So therefore, what went through Congress afterwards was the revised document agreed by all. And, and, and that's, that's my, my point. But you were going to mention, and I know you were, the sort of penalties that people could face for their crimes. And I think that would, that would take us into more conversations. So you did say, it's like, you know, okay, so the FARC are involved in the conversations about the justice that they are going to see and going to... Um, you know, let's go be privy to what if, I mean, if and when they're found guilty. But of course, I, I guess some of the things is there. If you're if you've committed crimes against humanity, you're going to jail, right? Or if and if you are found to have committed crimes and not admit them before the tribunal, you're also going to get a higher penalty. I mean, can you perhaps explain a little bit about this? Sure. There's basically sort of like two ideas, you know, underlying the Colombian transitional justice system. Uh, the first one is that what we're going to try to do is, is, a, is, a, is a transitional justice system that sort of balances two types of justice. 
one that is based on retribution or punishment mm -hmm. and the other one which has you know deals with reparations and redress or a more restorative form of justice mm -hmm. we're trying to do both we're trying to have penalties punishments but we're also trying to ensure that those penalties have a social meaning basically that you know as you are uh uh Paying your penalty, you're, you know, you're on your sanction. That sanction has to be able to also satisfy these victims' rights. Like, uh, it's not just, you know, we, we don't want people to rot in jail. That's not the point. The point is that the penalty can also help people heal. The penalty can also help people find missing truths that they've longed for for a long time. And the penalty can also help uh, repair entire communities. That's the first underlying premise. The other one is that basically, you know, um, and that's why I forgot to say, that's why we, we didn't even call it the transitional justice chapter in the peace agreement. It's called the chapter about victims, because it, as you can see, we sort of like changed the emphasis from the perpetrators to the victims. This is centered on victims. The entire point of this is the victims, not the, the perpetrators. We, you know, this is not designed to help them sort of like solve their legal conundrum. Uh, mm -hmm. And the other premise, now when you look at it from the point of view of the perpetrators, the people who are going before the tribunal, which are not just uh, FARC members, but anyone who committed uh, you know, these mass atrocities during the armed conflict, like for example, some military, um, some other actors uh, who, have, who have never faced um, you know, justice before, and they, they can have the incentive of coming here and having these you know, sort of like more lenient sanctions, but on the condition that they, you know, comply with what the transitional justice uh, designed. And this is the second underlying premise, like to be able to qualify for a more lenient sanction, you basically have to fill three boxes. You have, you have a checkbox and you have to do all three. You have to, first of all, uh, admit your responsibility. You have to acknowledge, own up to what you did. Uh, mm -hmm. It is not conditioned. You cannot come before the HEP and say, I want a lenient, lenient you know, sanction, but I, I am innocent. I, I did nothing. Prove it. No way. That doesn't work. Second condition is you have to contribute to truth. You, have, you know, what you tell either the, the tribunal itself or the peace and you know, the uh, truth and reconciliation commission has to help uncover truths that are missing, has to allow us to understand what happened better. And three, you have to directly help repair victims. You have to help victims sort of like get back on their feet, whether through, you know, material re redress or through work or through symbolic acts that basically help uh, bring back victims, you know, the dignity that they lost. So only if you do those three things, if you check those three boxes, acknowledge your responsibility, contribute to truth and uh, help redress victims, you may qualify for one of those special sanctions. Uh, and the difference is, you know, basically between paying uh, five to 10 years in, an, in a non-prison setting, which is still yet to be exactly determined what it's going to look like. We don't have that entire answer even now, five years after the peace deal. The tribunal is going to have to uh, set that with the first decision, which is coming very soon. Uh, or paying in anywhere from between 15 to 20 years in prison. So that's the main difference. You, you either get that for the, for the worst crimes. Five to, five to eight years in a non-prison setting, 
but you do those three things we said, you know, you acknowledge your responsibility, you, you help tell the truth and you help address victims or you get 15 to 20 years in a prison sen- in a prison setting. The only uh, basically benefit you would get in that case is you get sort of a shorter prison sentence because you, you already laid down your weapons and that sort of, you know, that's taken into account. You would have gotten much more in the ordinary criminal justice system. Uh, but that's basically, Whoa. so we have those two tracks. Uh, mm-hmm. And as you go to the hip, you decide which track you're going through. You're going to go through the left track, which is more lenient, but gives you those three conditions, or you're going to go to the right-hand track and, you know, face prison. S- simple lies and complex truths <laughs> is your thing. But, uh, quickly, but I'm going to jump in. What's the first decision that's coming soon? So what happened last week was, was very transformational because, uh, um, and for Colombians especially, it's highly symbolic. It obviously sadly, or, you know, this happens, got a bit lost with all the ruckus around the protests and everybody's thinking about protests. But this, you know, something very, very important happened. FARC, uh, FARC, seven FARC former commanders uh, formed the upper echelon of FARC, which, you know, they called the Secretariat, but it's basically the highest ring of power within FARC. They owned up to uh, the uh, accusation which the HEP laid down on concerning kidnappings. And kidnappings have, have been, this is very symbolic because kidnappings were by far FARC's most infamous crime. Uh, it was, you know, we were on national, before riots right now, we were on the international press uh, for years because we had, you know, there were people who were held as hostages in the, in the jungle for as, as, as long as 14 years in some cases. People held, you know, behind sort of like prison bars, uh, People, some people were comparing them to concentration camps in the Amazon. Um, people were held in, you know, very, very, very poor conditions for a very long time. Everywhere, everything from politicians to soldiers and policemen through to humble local townspeople. And um, so, basically, the FARC, uh, the HEP, sorry, the tribunal, uh, laid down its first accusation in January, late January, after two years or a year and a half of investigation. Um, and it pointed out that FARC had committed uh, war crimes and crimes against humanity, uh, not just because of kidnapping, but uh, also with a series of connected crimes, you know, connected to kidnapping. Some people who died in, for example, during, during their, you know, their time as hostages, people who were submitted to torture or to cruel treatments and degrading treatments to even sexual violence. Um, and after FARC had sort of, uh, yeah, well, I guess it was two months in the end, uh, for them to think, you know, to read this indictment, to think about it. And there was this big question, what are they going to do? Uh, will they go, you know, to, through the left-hand path or will they go through the right-hand path? And their answer finally came last Friday. And their decision was they owned up to everything. They accepted the entire indictment, uh, which basically means they accepted having committed war crimes and crimes, crimes against humanity, uh, something that had never happened before. It took them... 28 years, basically, to do this gigantic U-turn on, you know, the way they referred to kidnappings, which they were very, you know, arrogant and unrecognizing of before. Uh, and little by little, you know, gradually, this this is, and so that's a very interesting thing as well, you know, process of transformation in which now they acknowledge not just that the, what they did was wrong, and they have very strong sentences about that. They said, you know, we, we know we didn't make mistakes. We know we committed crimes uh, against, uh, you know, war crimes. And uh, in the process, which is even more interesting for me, they are now recognizing the, the full scope of horror of, you know, that their victims had to endure. So that's why this was just so important. We still don't know what mm. the penalties will be. 
Uh, but we, you know, we're guessing obviously that they're going through the left-hand path. They chose the left-hand path. They are starting to admit their responsibility. We now have to obviously see that they also continue contributing to truth and 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 redress victims. I think it's fascinating, isn't it? Because for so long, what do they call it? Economic detentions or retentions? Yeah. Retentions, yeah. They would, and it was so cynical to hear that. It was very cynical. And, but it, it was um, uh, Mauricio El Medico yep. uh, who, who who did say, you know, that it was a big error, didn't he? He was the one who admitted. He was a one few of the first back. ones. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. He said. He said it was. It, well, that was when we really lost our way. And but uh, this this about the the kidnapping and unfortunately because of the protests and the Paro Nacional going on, it really didn't make the news and at least not you know a little bit here and there and i saw it and i went this is the biggest thing yeah this is major they've admitted to something that colombia is identifiable with you know oh you're going to colombia don't get kidnapped you know that's that kind of reaction it's huge and what i'm now fascinated about is when this this uh you know ruling by the in the tribunal comes out Will they say then, okay, Pastor Alape, you know, one of the guerrillas or whatever, you have gone down the left path, you've ticked the three boxes, you guys have admitted this. There's a possibility that he could go be sent to, you know, for some uh, prison type <laughs> uh, penalty for, say, up, up to eight years? Non-prison setting up for up to no, eight but, years. but you know what I mean. Uh, the yeah, non-prison setting, but it could be. I mean, it could be pretty miserable, or you know, like hard hard labor or something. It could be pretty. You know, this is still something that hasn't been fleshed out in the end. Like the peace negotiate, and that's that's something I wrote about in in my first book on the peace process, on the you know sort of like the conceptual, the toughest conceptual debates in the negotiation, and then you know the creative solutions. Mm-hmm that were brought forward to solve them. And this, you know, latter part of the sanctions is one that the peace negotiation was not able to solve, like the exact nature of what it was going to look like. Um, there were some ideas, but it was tough, you know. Then the constitutional court also sort of like kicked the ball forward and said, you know, everything's fine, we approve everything, everything's constitutional, but it's going to be the HEP that has to decide this, you know, what exactly it looks like. And the HEP has taken two years and hasn't solved this yet. My guess, but this is just an informed guess, this is not... You know, I don't have any inside information, um, but it, in the end, it should look like something like what we call in Spanish. I'm not sure if this applies in English, uh, sort of like agricultural or you know, rural penal colonies, um, mm-hmm. which, by the way, incidentally, is what Marta Lucia Ramirez, you know, uh, the vice president back then, just a conservative politician uh, and former boss of the head peace negotiator, because she was Sergio Ramirez's boss for quite a long time because he wrote the uh, democratic Mm -hmm. security policy for her at the beginning of Uribe's government. Uh, She said, that's what she proposed. She said, let's make them look like agricultural penal colonies. That's what she said during the renegotiation. It was difficult to flesh it out back then. uh, But, uh, but that's the, you know, one of the ideas that has been sort of like on the cards for a long time. Incidentally, also curiously, uh, she was she was probably the most um, how to call, how to say this you know the the most uh, you know good student during the negotiation phase. Mm-hmm. You know she put out a bunch of proposals, uh, very well fleshed out. All of them were accepted. Uh, the, the head peace negotiators took you know so you know, we had all you know the peace team had sort of organized this on these Excel sheets and they took 
everything to her at the end and showed her how ev everything she had proposed had been integrated into the peace accord. Um, and she said, yes, it's true. She acknowledged that that was, had happened. And then she said, I'm still going to not back it. Uh, so, you know, you can see that, you know, people chose politics, short-term politics over sort of like, you know, or politicking over good politics and you know, long-term ones. Uh, but that's uh, probably what it's going to look yeah. like. I, 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 yeah, I mean, I, I could see that being the ideal, uh, you know, solution to this. And of, of course, we need to know, and people out there need to know that Marta Lucia Ramirez, who will take a run at the presidency in 2022, we, we imagine, she was, you know, let's say, fundamental in the creation of that idea. Uh, let's remember that. Uh, but of course, as you say, politicking. Well, she was jostling for that. No, she won't. But there'll be documentation. You know, there will be. It will. Um, so I'm curious now, talking about this, and when we, when you mentioned a hundred thousand people missing, yeah, uh, in the Colombian conflict, does this include the like the these these sort of uh, what would you call them mass grave sites underneath the cemeteries themselves, like in Dabeba, Antioquia, where they where they've started unearthing victims of i i guess they're the false false positive victims or victims of massacres there's, there's also you know the universe of people that are deemed missing in colombia is quite diverse and that also explains why the number sort of keeps you know going up i've never really understood how you can establish that kind of number with such certainty um i think the working number during the peace negotiation was something like forty-five thousand, but then now the unit says it's you know a above 100,000. But basically, you know, this, in, this includes at least four, I would say, like, just to give you a couple of examples, uh, four or five very different profile, profiles of victims. It includes people like what you were describing, people who are um, executed extrajudicially and, in, in, you know, are ill-named uh, false positives, uh, mm. which were basically, you know, uh, execu extrajudicial extra executions carried out by state agents. But we also have people who were kidnapped and who never returned home, who potentially died during captivity or not, uh, but, you know, whose families still have no idea what happened to them. And that's, for example, one that, you know, falls squarely on FARC's shoulders and their response to the indictment uh, begins trying to give information about as much as they remember of many of these people. Um, but there's also people who, for example, uh, even may have belonged to armed groups and died at some point during combat and nobody ever, or, or, or not combat militias in cities and then disappeared. You know, they could have been executed by paramilitaries. They could have, you know, something happened to them and their relatives also do not know what happened to them. So, you know, it's sort of a very different, um, same crime, same horrible crime, because families are sort of, you know, in this limbo in which they do not know what happened to them. Um, some, in some cases, they might still have um, even hopes of finding them. Uh, mm -hmm. A couple of bodies have also have already been recovered, which is something that is very important also for victims to be able to you know, to heal, to give closure to their to their family dramas or and, and traumas. Pain is not going to go away, but it might change. Um, and that's why this very small, interesting unit is working on trying to, you know, at some point find as much information as it can to give to each family who has uh, a disappeared victim. Mm. I, I am, you know, we see obviously, the, as you say, the false positives. Uh, most people here will know about that. Um, but you have so you have the military being 
brought up on these, and then you have, let's say, the FARC being brought up on the issue of child soldiers mm -hmm. and, and kidnappings. You know, both sides are being hammered hard by this HEP, by the jurisdiction. And, and I mean, what do I keep saying that to people again who are against it, saying, oh, it's not, you know, it's not delivering justice, everything's against the military. It's, uh, it's not. It really is being very effective on, on both sides so far. And, you know, and, and as far as it could, uh, it, it's it's reach right now. But what is my my curiosity is we, okay. So we got the military on one side. Definitely, you know, there are savage uh, and nefarious acts they've carried out since 1985, and of course the guerrillas, well publicized, well documented, uh, you know, crimes against humanity and so on that they've done. But where did the paramilitaries fit into this? In, in this kind of mm -hmm. you know, in between, because I suppose, yeah. you know, supposedly they, you know, put down their weapons. Was it in two thousand and two? I want to say yeah, between three and six, two thousand three to two thousand six. Well, you know, basically one of the things that hit home when when the new peace negotiations were taking place was, you know, this this can't be just. About FARC in one in one important sentence. You know, Colombia's nine million victims, which back then were obviously less because we've you know obviously continued counting. Um, we're and counting not in the sense that you know a lot a lot of victims are. I mean, we still obviously have human rights violations uh, taking place presently, but uh, a lot of people have even come forward years after they're being victimized. So we've gotten better at counting. For example. The HEP case on kidnappings believes that in total, 21,000 people might have been kidnapped by HEP, and 2,500 of them, uh, which is a small percentage of the total universe, perhaps, mm -hmm. but that's a bunch of people, have already registered as parties to the case. So you have 2,500 victims reading FARC's documents on kidnapping and saying, you know, asking specific questions like, what happened to my husband? Uh, what was the last thing you heard from, you know, from my father, etc.? And that's very important because obviously participation in the system is, is fundamental. Um, but we realized, of course, we have these other actors as well. Uh, the paramilitaries paramilitary did not come into the transitional justice for one fundamental reason. They already had their transitional justice mechanism uh, called Justicia y Paz, uh, Justice and Peace, back in, uh, you know, between 2008, 2010. Uh, and, you know, with, it had interesting results. Uh, it was a very lengthy judicial process because people were tried individually, which is a very, very complicated thing. And this one of the, obviously, everything we've done before has served as a lesson to what we did now. But what we did now was also very different. We're, we we now have macro cases, which basically sort of like bring one entire criminal pattern together and try everyone uh, within a structure on that crime at the same time. So, for example, that's why the first indictment uh, on kidnappings was against eight FARC leaders, former leaders. One of them ironically died just the day before HEP announced its indictment. So seven were the one who, to own up. And over the coming months, it's going to have uh, connected minor indictments targeting the leaders of the of the regional structure, military structure, mm -hmm. or blocks, uh, blocks that FARC had. Similarly, the case on extrajudicial executions by the military is target, you know, is sort of basically identifying those most responsible in each of the military units and then uh, finally on a national level. Uh, 
one is sort of like going from top, you know, the FARC case on kidnappings is going top bottom. The other one is going bottom up. So it's going to begin with the military structures individually and then going up to, you know, sort of hierarchy, you know, the top hierarchy. Uh, but in the end, that's what it's doing. And, and you know, we, we have a much better chance of, ha- of delivering justice in a country that has seen so many mass atrocities this way. But a lot of people do say that this is impunity. And, you know, the best way to answer that is, you know, well, mo- most people haven't even seen this, but uh, have you ever seen the record of the ordinary criminal justice trying these issues? It's, I, have, I, I remember having looked at, you know, obviously finding the numbers for all of this is very difficult, but we have, Colombia has some very good researchers who are trying to put numbers down to this. And I remember having looked at the, uh, the numbers of uh, sentences and rulings in cases of child recruitment and sexual violence in the context of the armed conflict. And the the number of cases that have not reached the decision was more than 90%. So, you know, mm. the question or the idea, this idea that there's impunity is just falls flat when you realize that the ordinary criminal justice, in many cases doing a lot of, you know, hard work, for example, in kidnapping, it had, it had advanced, but it was, it had to go case by case, not even perpetrator by perpetrator, criminal case by criminal case. Um, and in a country of nine million victims, where many of them have suffered, you know, different uh, victimization, uh, you know, it's it's just very difficult. So this has a much better chance of delivering justice than the ordinary criminal justice system that many people, you know, sort of like would would like, you know, would like it to shoulder the entire uh, burden. But you know, it's it's just not well prepared and, and un- unable to to deliver there and and so because of this realization we also understood that we had to give the opportunity of going be- before the transitional justice to victims of other actors who had committed crimes uh war crimes and crimes against humanity or very serious crimes and had not had this chance before and that basically um means the military and maybe also policemen but you know the state forces um and this is very important because it's it, it doesn't just mean that you are going to hold them accountable. You are, but it also gives them the possibility of owning up to things and having you know a more lenient a more lenient sanction, but only if you you know tick those boxes. And that is much more um, repairing, redressing, and fulfilling to, to to victims. Obviously, not to everyone. It's very hard to please everyone, but it's very important. And, and this is why it's also so ironic that some political sectors. Uh, have tried to sort of push the narrative that the peace agreement degraded the military mm. and that the peace agreement equated guerrillas with, uh, with um, soldiers. When it's giving soldiers and policemen who committed crimes the chance to own up to their crimes and have you know, uh, a, a shorter prison sentence, it's going to help them sort of clarify their legal situation, which is the, you know, the biggest irony when these sectors, political sectors, use this you know, joker card which is just ideological, in the end, they're actually, um, you know, they're actually hindering and hampering these soldiers' opportunity to go before the transitional justice. In, instead of helping them, uh, they're actually, you know... Yeah. They're creating a problem for them because the truth will come out. I mean, the truth always comes out at some stage, you know, hopefully sooner rather than later in some of these cases. But the truth always, there's always some documentation, there's always something or some witness or some, someone somewhere who will come forward out of a benefit, probably. But I think you've covered it quite in depth. What, what I was, I was obviously 
most taken by the issue of, of kidnapping because of the because of the importance of it and that what what it means to Colombia kidnapping and so I'd like to thank you as well for also shooting down some of the fallacies of you know what the opposition to the HEP say you know the impunity and so on and the, the lack of, of justice there I understand that you've just released uh, because we're recording beforehand, but you're just released uh, something about uh, violence against uh, environmental defenders, which of course is incredibly important right now. I'm thinking of Berta Cáceres in uh, Honduras. Honduras? Or is that El Honduras, Honduras, yes. Honduras, yeah. I'm thinking of that. This is the kind of thing you've just released? We've Yes, we've been working for two years now in, uh, on a <laughs> cross-border project documenting violence against environmental defenders in 12 Latin American countries now. It's wow. called Land of Resistance. You can see it in English as well. It has an English version. And because, of course, Latin America is the worst place for... Latin America uh, is, is it has a very, very interesting and dramatic paradox. It's at the same time the most biodiverse region in the world. And it is also the region most dangerous to environmental leaders and communities. Mm. Just bizarre stuff. How do you? I, finally, a type of digression here as we have to wrap this up. You've been working on the, you know, on the peace process. You write about it. I mean, with such uh, fluency, obviously, because you've worked on it right at the beginning. And people, sh I recommend anyone look at uh, Andres's work, Andres Bermudez, JusticeInfo.net. You'll find it in English and in Spanish, and I believe in French too, right? If, if this is a, okay. uh, but. Uh, and then in two years on environment, you know, violence against environmental defenders and activists. How do you stay upbeat? Because this is hardcore stuff that you're working on. No, I mean, well, I think one, f and I mean, maybe the example of uh, violence against environmental defenders is, 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 is sort of a different thing there. But most of my work and a lot of my work has tried to understand how victims have been coping and have been reconstructing mm -hmm. their 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 lives and that's why why you know the usual things i cover on the ground as much as i can are how people for example have substitu substituted coca crops for other alternative you know options how victims have uh forged ahead with projects that have helped them rebuild their lives so in general i've mo you know i've been mostly concentrating on understanding from directly from their perspective you know how have they forged ahead and that's what gives me mm. optimism Okay. Well, that's that's awesome. That's great to hear because, of course, you know this is this is pretty heavy stuff. Um, but let me let me take this moment to say thank you so much to Andres Bermudez for his time to share a little bit. A little bit. I think we only got a, you know, a tiny percentage of his knowledge on the Jurisdicción Especial para la Paz, the HEP, Special Jurisdiction for Peace. But it really was quite revealing. And you've put to bed some of the fallacies that people out there will say. And of course, don't believe everything you read on social media because that's where the hate lives. <laughs> that's the truth. That's where it is. And I wish you all the best of luck. And of course, I will be reading justiceinfo.net as soon as that first, uh, that first sentence is handed down you know for the kidnapping case i mean this is this is pretty big this is a a, a defining moment for colombia i'd say absolutely yeah, definitely well thank you again andres for your time check out justiceinfo.net check out uh, the book what's it called again the book on the environmental defenders it's a project land of resistance you can see it at land of resistance 
Excellent. So thank you again. This has been episode 376 of the Columbia Calling podcast. I've been talking to Andres Bermudez. I've been Richard McCall, and this is another great episode. We'll be back next week talking further interesting things about Colombia. Thank you again. Bye-bye.